Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Visit Indeed.com Peter to start hiring right now. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Today, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 75 basis points. The target Fed funds rate is now between three and three and a quarter percent. Now, that is exactly the interest rate hike that everybody was expecting. That's what I expected. And the reason I expected the Fed to deliver a 75 basis point rate hike is that the Fed has gotten into a habit of delivering exactly what the markets expect. For a while, there were some people who were thinking maybe it would be 100 basis points. But since that was a minority position, I didn't think the Fed was going to do that. If the majority of people thought the Fed was going to hike by 100 basis points, then the Fed wouldn't deliver 100 basis points. It didn't do it because it doesn't want to upset the markets. Because even though Powell claims he doesn't care about the markets, he absolutely does care. And so he only wants to raise by the amount that he thinks the markets are okay with. Because after all, if the expectation of a 75 basis point rate hike is already priced in, then you don't risk doing any damage by delivering something that's already priced in. Probably what Powell may not understand is that it really doesn't matter at this point, even if Powell delivers exactly what's expected. What is expected is very bad for stocks. Would it have been worse if he raised rates by 100 basis points? Maybe, but given how weak the markets were, it's hard to believe it would have been much worse. And the problem for the markets is rates are going up by how much It doesn't even matter at this point 
what matters more is that they're not zero anymore and they're going much higher and you have a market that is priced basically for free money for 0% interest rates and not only 0% interest rates but quantitative easing and not only don't we have quantitative easing we now have quantitative tightening although there was very little if any mention of quantitative tightening today either by Powell in his prepared remarks or in the Q&A that followed and I'll be talking about that but the markets know that there's no more QE program to rely on and you can look at a chart and compare the stock market gains since 2008 with QE programs and they're very highly correlated so the markets have lost the two primary crutches that they were relying on for support quantitative easing and cheap money. But not only are those supports gone, but now we have the opposite. We have quantitative tightening and we have money that's getting a lot more expensive. And in fact, Powell actually promised during the Q&A that he was going to move interest rates up to the point where we had positive real interest rates. He didn't just talk about nominal increases. Powell acknowledged that what was needed was positive real interest rates. And Powell believes that by next year, we will have positive real interest rates. In fact, two things that he did say that may have surprised the markets a little bit in the fact that they might've been a bit more hawkish than what the markets expected was that Powell suggested that by the end of the year, interest rates would be at 4.4. That would be, I guess, the midpoint for the Fed funds rate, 4.4. How we got 4.4 exactly, I don't really know. But that would imply that we were at four and a quarter to four and a half, which would mean another 125 more basis points of tightening between now and the end of the year. And I think that's a bit more than the markets expected. But also in the Q&A, when Powell was talking about delivering positive real interest rates, he thought that the Fed funds rate would be about 4.6% at that point. So maybe one extra 25 basis point hike. But according to Powell, at that point, that 4.6% Fed funds rate would deliver a yield in excess of what he believes the inflation rate will have fallen to by that point. Now, he talked about inflation expectations. So maybe he didn't mean the trailing inflation rate, but what the markets expected the 12-month forward inflation rate to be. He is promising positive real interest rates, the opposite of what we've had all along. We have had negative real interest rates. Even at this point in time, we still have negative real interest rates, despite the fact that the Fed has moved interest rates up to three to three and a quarter. Inflation is eight and a half. So you've got negative 5% real rates. And Powell is saying or acknowledging that what's needed is positive real rates, and he expects to achieve that by next year. Now, first of all, if Powell is finally admitting that we need positive real interest rates, and he seemed to claim that that's what's needed to really exert downward pressure on inflation. And in fact, he said that even with the recent 75 basis point hike, that all we've done is move into the lower level of being restrictive. So Powell thinks this is restrictive. It's just at the lower end of that range. But it's not restrictive. If inflation is above eight and interest rates are barely above three, you're still at negative 5% real. 
you're not restrictive at all. But if Powell finally is accepting the fact that to really push down inflation, we need to have positive real interest rates, why not immediately move there right now? Why drag your feet? Why wait? In fact, why does the Fed even have to wait for a meeting to raise interest rates? If the Fed recognizes that interest rates are too low, why can't it just raise them the minute it recognizes that? Why does it have to wait for an actual meeting? And why does it have to use this incremental approach? In fact, one of the questions that Powell was asked about why it's so important to fight inflation now is he said, well, we can't do it later because it will be so much more painful. So we have to act quickly to try to ease the pain. Yes, it's going to be painful. Powell admitted that there's no way that we're going to address this inflation problem without any pain. He just says that we can't risk fighting the inflation later because then we're going to have even more pain. Yes, that's true. So where was Powell a few years ago when he said we're going to err on the side of allowing the inflation genie to get out of the bottle. If Powell knows how painful it is to deal with an inflation problem, why did he let it get out of control in the first place? Why didn't he preemptively act when he had the opportunity? Obviously, all he was doing back then was delaying. He didn't care about the delay or how much more pain we would ultimately have to endure because at that point, inflation wasn't a big problem. The reason he wants to do something about it now is that the problem is so big it can no longer be ignored. Despite the fact that Powell acknowledged that there's no getting rid of this inflation problem without some pain, he's still holding out hope that the Fed can orchestrate a soft landing. That ship has sailed. In fact, the Atlanta Fed just came out again with another downward revision to Q3 GDP. It's now at just 0.3. And this is in line with exactly what I've been saying would happen with respect to the Atlanta Fed. They're going to keep downwardly revising this estimate until we end up with a negative number. So if we have three negative GDP quarters, how could you talk about avoiding a soft landing? And in fact, Powell talked a lot about the supposed strength of the economy because he was asked about it. And Powell described the economy as being strong and robust. He didn't just say it was strong and he didn't just say it was robust. He said it was strong and robust. That's how strong Powell believes the U.S. economy is, despite the fact that you have two and probably three consecutive quarters of falling GDP growth. And what's so significant about Powell's claim that the economy is so strong and robust, and he acknowledged that himself, is that it means that the economy can withstand interest rate hikes. And so by telling everybody how strong the economy is, he's preparing investors for even more rate hikes. After all, if the economy is so super strong, there's no reason why the Fed can't fight hard to battle inflation because the economy is so strong that it can withstand these rate hikes without any collateral damage. Now, based on what is Fed Chairman Powell claiming that this economy is so strong and robust? One of the factors is the so-called strong labor market. But one of the main reasons that so many people are working is because so many people need multiple jobs just to make ends meet because the economy is so weak. But there were two other points that Powell made to explain why he believes that the U.S. economy is strong. One of them was an outright lie. He said that households have a lot of savings. We know they don't. 
The savings rate is the lowest it's been since the 2008 financial crisis and headed lower. How could Powell claim that the reason the economy is so strong is because households have so much savings when their savings are depleted, when households have never had less savings than they do right now, other than the 2008 financial crisis, which is not exactly a period of strong, robust economy. So that was basically an outright lie. It can't be that Powell hasn't seen these statistics. He's got to know that households are tapped out. They've depleted their savings and they're running up their credit card debt. So how can he claim that that's the reason that the economy is so strong? But the other reason he said the economy was so strong is because he said that state governments were flush with cash. Now, I haven't done any research into that. I'm not sure if they're flush or not. But I can tell you one thing, if they're flush, they won't be flush for long because two things are going to happen that are going to deplete any cash that the states have. One is the economy moving deeper into recession, which will ultimately cause a loss in jobs in those states and a reduction in tax revenue going into state governments. But more important than that is the increase in interest rates that is going to crush the states. Because all of these states have debt. You have muni bonds that have been issued, the state governments, local governments, and a lot of this debt is going to mature over the next several years. And interest rates have already gone up a lot and they're going to continue to go up a lot. In fact, while I'm speaking about interest rates, look at what happened to yields today. The yield now on a two year treasury is now the high watermark at 4.05%. It's now above the yield on a one-year treasury that's 4.03%. These are new high yields for this cycle. But the fact that the market now is pricing a two-year above a one-year, the markets now believe that the Fed will leave higher interest rates in place longer. And that's why these two-year yields are up, because the market no longer believes that after one year, the Fed is going to be cutting rates. The markets are now pushing back into the future, the first rate cut to happen after two years. So this is bad news for debtors who were hoping for some kind of relief. In fact, if you look at the yield curve now for the first time, it's inverted all the way from the two-year to the 30-year. And this is the first time that I have seen the 10-year yield higher than the 30-year yield. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We haven't had this happen yet. It's now happened. And again, this shows you that the market is completely clueless about inflation because the markets believe that the Fed is going to win this battle with inflation. It's going to do the impossible and return inflation to 2%. And that's why people are willing to accept a 3.5% yield for the next 30 years because they think for most of those 30 years, inflation will be below 2%. It's just that for the next few years, it won't be. And that is what is ultimately being priced in. But the markets are wrong twice. 
They're wrong about the economy and they're wrong about the inflation. The economy is going to be much weaker than investors think, but at the same time, inflation is going to be much stronger than investors think. But this backup in yields is going to be extremely problematic for state governments when they have to refinance a lot of the debt that they originally took out when interest rates were much lower. Then, of course, the same problem is going to exist for the federal government. Nobody talked about that at all today during the press conference. If yields on 12-month or two-year treasuries a year or two ago were just 25 basis points, and now they're 400 basis points, you're looking at a 16-fold increase in debt service costs. This is off the charts. Right now, the government is already spending about $500 billion a year on interest payments. That's up from about $300 billion. In fact, I was watching a conversation on CNBC, and they were actually talking about this, and they said that at the rate things are moving, it's possible that in 10 years, we might be paying $1 trillion a year in interest on the national debt. 10 years, we could be paying $1 trillion in interest in one year. How are these guys getting 10 years? We've got a $31 trillion national debt. 4% of that is one and a quarter trillion. And you know the average maturity, I think, is under five years. A third of the debt matures in the next year, but the debt is going up. Five years from now, the national debt will be over $40 trillion, and we're going to have to pay an interest rate probably more than 5% on that. So a trillion-dollar tab for interest on the national debt isn't a decade away. It's a year, maybe two away. That's how close this crisis is. Where is the government going to get that money? It's probably going to be something like 30% of tax revenue or 40% of tax revenue would be going just for interest on the national debt, not paying down any of the debt, just paying the interest on the debt, and the debt keeps growing. This is a massive fiscal time bomb. One of the most important things not to forget when you're running your own business is that every single hire counts, and no hiring partner understands that better than Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for the candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessment, and Virtual Interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed U.S. data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job. What I like best about Indeed is how they make it so easy to do all your hiring in one place. Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to actually apply for a job than candidates who merely see it in search, according to U.S. data. And with Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit Indeed.com slash Peter to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. In fact, earlier today, I retweeted a tweet that I made back on September 28th of 2021. And I was referring to a comment that Janet Yellen made 
in response to a question at one of these hearings about the national debt and if we should be worried about the size of the debt. And her answer was no. She said we shouldn't be worrying about the size of the national debt. She said instead we should be focusing on how low interest rates are and how low the current debt service is on that debt. So it didn't matter that we had a lot of debt because it was cheap to finance it. Now, at that time, I pointed out, hey, wait a minute, what happens when interest rates go up? I compared that to people who were buying houses with adjustable rate mortgages. What happens when the rate goes up and you can't afford it? Because the Treasury wasn't taking advantage of low 30-year borrowing costs. The Fed was borrowing for six months, for one year, for two years. So they were rolling the dice and gambling that interest rates stayed low. Well, they're not low. They're much higher. I wonder if Janet Yellen is worrying about the national debt now that interest rates have moved up so much. Or is she going to start worrying because we already know that they're going to move much higher? For years, that was the justification that the government gave for borrowing money. They kept saying, hey, interest rates are really low. We should take advantage of it. We should just keep borrowing money while rates are low. Well, maybe you could have made that argument if you were locking in those low rates for 30 years, not if you were having to roll them over 30 days, 90 days, one year. And in fact, I often said, wait a minute, just because something is cheap doesn't mean you should do it. I would say, hey, if heroin was free, if they were giving out free heroin, would you say, hey, heroin is free. I might as well use it. It's free. If something is bad, just because the cost goes down, that doesn't mean you do it. And taking on all this debt was bad. Just because it was temporarily cheap, it wasn't a reason to do it. Well, we did it, and now we have to deal with the consequences. Powell said it himself, the longer you wait to deal with the problem, the worse the consequences. Well, we've waited a long time. In fact, the Federal Reserve deliberately created inflation since 2008 to postpone the pain. Why did we do quantitative easing? Why did interest rates go way down? Because the Fed did not want to allow a bad recession or allow a bad recession to get worse. The Fed wanted to prop up stock prices. The Fed wanted to prop up real estate prices. So in order to do that, we created inflation. We put interest rates at zero. We did quantitative easing. Well, now we've got a huge inflation problem. And now the Fed has to fight a monster that it created. But the Fed can't fight and create inflation at the same time. So if the only reason the economy was propped up, the only reason the markets were propped up was because of inflation, and now we're going to remove the inflation prop, everything built on top of that foundation has to collapse. And that's exactly what we're seeing, except so far we're seeing it in slow motion. But it's not going to stay in slow motion for long. It's going to accelerate. And in fact, Powell himself even acknowledged while he was talking about how strong the economy is based on two false premises, one, that the consumer was flush when he's broke, and two, that states are flush when they're about to be broke, just like the federal government. But he acknowledged that housing prices are too high and that they have to come down so that people can afford to buy houses. And one of the reasons that prices have to come way down so that people can afford to buy houses is because mortgage rates have gone way up. In fact, when I recorded my last podcast over the weekend, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage was 6.1. 
It's been less than a week, and now it's 6.47%. That is a huge jump in just three days, and it's going to keep going up. And Powell acknowledged that we're going to have to have a correction in housing. What does that mean? Home prices are going to fall. Well, what does that mean? That means a lot. We've already seen this movie before. What happens when home prices fall? People mail in their keys instead of their mortgage payments. And how do we know this? Because the average down payment has only been 5%. So you have a lot of people who bought into the peak of a housing bubble who are going to have negative equity very quickly, and they're already going to be struggling with other rising costs. And so what incentive will they have to remain in their homes? None. And so if Powell recognizes that we're going to have a big drop in the housing market on top of all the other problems, how could he still be holding out hope for a soft landing? In fact, he said he was still hopeful that we wouldn't have any kind of meaningful increase in unemployment either. Why? If we have a big drop in home prices, and in fact, he acknowledged that shelter inflation would continue for many years. And of course, there is no such thing as shelter inflation. There's just inflation. But what he acknowledged was that the cost of shelter would keep going up, even though home prices were going to go down. Why? Because mortgage rates are going to go up. Maintenance costs are going to go up. Insurance costs are going to go up. Everything associated with home ownership is going to get more expensive, which means the price of the house itself is the only thing they can give. It has to go down. But that means there's no more construction. A lot of people who work in construction are going to lose their jobs. Look at the news that came out yesterday from Ford Motor Company. Ford Motor Company announced that they're slashing production because they can't get a lot of parts, but the parts that they can get are more expensive, so they have to raise their prices while they're cutting production. But since the overall volume of sales is going to go down, Ford is going to have to make up some of that difference with even bigger price increases because they have to cover whatever fixed overhead they have with fewer sales. So you're losing some of the economies that come with volume. And so that means prices are going to go up even more than just the increase in the cost of production. And this also means layoffs are coming at Ford. Those are high paying jobs that are going to disappear. But Ford is not just a one-off situation. This is endemic of what's going on and what will go on in the entire economy where everybody is loaded up with debt and now servicing all that debt costs a lot more money. If you have to pay a lot more money to service your debt, that leaves a lot less money left over for everything else. And so as everybody cuts back in order to pay higher costs on their debt, everything implodes. And it's not just the individuals that are going to cut back. Corporate spending, corporate investment has to cut back because corporations are loaded up with record amounts of debt. The government, right, they have record amounts of debt. Interest costs are going to explode. Why does everybody have so much debt? Because of the Fed. The very agency that claims it's here to rescue us from this inflation problem created the inflation problem. And the reason solving the inflation problem is going to be so difficult is because we have so much debt. And why do we have so much debt? Because the Fed kicked the can down the road on inflation for 12 years. And all of a sudden, they found religion. Of course, I don't think Powell has found religion. I think when push comes to shove, he's going to go back to the same old sin of inflation. Quantitative easing, rate cuts. Again, Powell still believes that he can pull off the impossible. He still thinks that we can bring inflation back down to 2%, where at most we have a bumpy landing, that unemployment tweaks up a bit, 
and that we have a period of below trend growth. That's basically what he said. When somebody asked Powell what the chances were that his rate hikes would actually cause a recession, he didn't answer with a probability, 20%, 50%. His answer simply said that it's likely that we're going to have a period of below trend growth. Well, below trend growth still implies growth, not contraction. So he is not really thinking that we're going to have a recession, despite the fact that technically we're already in one and it's likely getting worse. But I believe when Powell is really confronted with how ugly this is going to be, then we're going to finally get that pivot. But this is a giant game of chicken. And I think Powell is going to keep up this pretense as long as he possibly can, because the sooner he's forced to give it up, the sooner we're going to have a real crisis, a currency crisis, a sovereign debt crisis. The Fed will lose all credibility when it pivots. So in order to hang on to that credibility as long as possible, Powell has to keep up that pretense. He has to keep on bluffing that he's going to do whatever it takes. And as long as he's doing that, the markets have to keep selling off. The economy is going to go into a protracted recession, not just a period of below trend growth. Remember, all the growth that we supposedly had since the 2008 financial crisis was phony. It was a giant debt-fueled bubble. And if we take the fuel out of that bubble, the whole thing deflates. So this is going to be a massive economic implosion, not just for the economy, but for the financial markets, stock prices, real estate prices, bond prices. Everything that the Fed inflated is going to have to deflate. Everything is going to have to come crashing down if the Fed is actually going to return inflation to 2%. And even if the Fed can't return inflation to 2%, how long is that going to take? Because I don't think anybody really understands this because Powell seems to think that we can get inflation down to 2% in another year or two. What if he's wrong? He's wrong about almost everything. So why not that? What if it takes five years to get the inflation rate down to 2%? Then what? We're going to have five more years of inflation fighting. How much higher will interest rates have to go over those five years? And meanwhile, even if the Fed succeeds in bringing inflation down to 2% five years from now, what are we going to do about the five years between now and then where inflation is way above 2%? What if it averages 5% during those five years that it's gradually coming down to 2%? That's another 28% increase in the cost of living from where it is right now. If people are already struggling with the cost of living where it is, how are they going to bear it if it's almost 30% higher? They're not. And of course, where are interest rates going to be? Where are mortgage payments going to be during that five-year period? And that's really a rosy scenario. I think that getting inflation down to 2% in five years is optimistic. I don't think the Fed's going to do it. And that's because I think the Fed is going to surrender in this fight Rather than letting the economy get knocked out, the Fed is going to throw in the towel and it is going to start easing, even though inflation is nowhere near 2%. In fact, when Powell was asked another question about pain and how much longer Americans would be forced to endure that pain in order to bring inflation back down to 2%, Powell didn't really answer the question. He basically just replied, it depends. Powell said it depends on how long it takes to get inflation back down to 2% or how long it takes for wages to rise high enough that it eclipses the increase in prices. So who knows how long that's going to take. But meanwhile, even if we have 
several years of inflation above 2%, returning it to 2% doesn't solve the problem because it doesn't bring prices back down. It just slows the rate of increase going forward. But if prices are already too high, then if they go any higher, that makes it worse unless you have strong wage growth and there's no indication that that's actually coming. And on another note, when Powell is talking about all the years that inflation is going to be above 2%, I wish one of these reporters who asked these questions would ask him about inflation averaging. Somebody has got to say, excuse me, Chair Powell, but your most recent policy, like a year and a half ago or so, was that we needed inflation to average 2% over time. And so that because we had so many years of below 2% inflation, the Fed should target inflation of a bit above 2% to make up for the difference so we can bring the average up for 2%. Okay, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if too little inflation is a problem, isn't too much inflation as much a problem? And so if we have three, four, or five years of inflation that's way above 2%, why is the Fed just trying to get inflation back to 2%? Why aren't they trying to get it below 2% and holding it below 2% for long enough to make up the difference and to bring the average inflation rate back down to 2%. Because if we never get inflation below 2%, after having so many years of inflation being above 2%, we'll never get the average down to 2%. Now, it's likely if Powell actually got that question, he would find a way to sidestep it and not even answer it at all. But maybe he would try to come up with some rationalization of why too low inflation is actually worse than too much inflation, but try to sell that to the American public that is struggling from high inflation and would welcome the relief, not only of some inflation of below 2%, but how about some good old-fashioned deflation? What the average American would like to see is prices coming down, something that the Federal Reserve claims is the worst possible thing that can ever happen. And all of this inflation was created under the pretense that the Federal Reserve needed to save us from the horrors of being forced to buy the stuff that we need and want at lower prices. And in fact, ironically, Powell actually admitted that the whole idea that prices have to rise and that if they fall, it's going to destroy demand is a complete farce. Remember, the pretense was unless consumers expected rising prices, they would stop buying things because if they thought prices would go down, they would just hold off indefinitely waiting for better prices. But when Powell said that real estate prices need to come down to make home ownership more affordable, he was acknowledging the beneficial effect of falling prices and that more people would be able to buy houses if the price went down. Well, the same thing applies to all goods and services. When prices go down, people buy more, not less. But I want to turn my attention now to the markets and the way they reacted to today's rate hike. And if it was Powell's intention, not to harm the markets by delivering exactly what the markets had already priced in, he failed miserably because despite getting exactly what they expected, the markets tanked anyway. And that's because when you are in a bear market, all news is bad news. It doesn't matter. Even if you get what you're expecting, if what you're expecting is bad and you're going to get even worse news in the future, the market should continue to go down and the market will continue to go down until either the Fed pivots or the markets are able to sense that that pivot is eminent. But we did get a roller coaster ride today because early in the morning, the major stock market indexes were up 
maybe on the fact that, okay, it's going to be the buyer rumor, sell the fact. We know the Fed's going to hike rates. We've been selling off the market in anticipation of the rate hikes. I think some people tried to front run that announcement by getting long going into it. But then maybe some of those investors has second thoughts because we had a sell-off just before the 2 p.m. announcement. And when we got the announcement and it was 75 and we didn't get the feared 100, we actually got a relief rally. The markets didn't start selling off till later in the day. And in fact, they closed pretty much on the exact lows, another very bearish technical indicator. The Dow Jones lost 522 points. It closed at 30,181.99. We're almost below 30,000. In fact, we can easily be below 30,000 tomorrow. The S&P 500 down 1.7%. We're now officially in bear market territory. Again, remember, we were ever so slightly out of it last week. And I said, I thought we would fall back into it this week, but it's been a bear market the entire time, despite the fact that we had that huge bear market rally. Russell 2000 down 1.4% today. And the NASDAQ was down 2.6%. Percentage wise, that was the biggest loser. Although the actual biggest losers may have been cryptocurrencies. As I'm recording this podcast on a Friday evening, Bitcoin is trading at around 18,500 and Ether is down at around 1,250. You know, Ether's had a huge drop recently. Now that that merge is out of the way, there are a lot of people buying the rumor and now selling the fact with respect to the Ethereum merge. But as the air is coming out of the risk bubble, there is no bigger risk bubble than cryptocurrencies. And Bitcoin is right at the forefront. Now, while higher interest rates clobbered risk assets, it had the opposite effect on the U.S. dollar regarded as a safe haven, especially against the euro and the Japanese yen. The euro now almost down to 98 cents even, Japanese yen down to 144.27. In fact, the dollar index is now at a new high for this move. It's about 111 and a half. And again, all of this is on the hawkish talk coming from Powell about how strong the economy is and how we're going to keep on raising interest rates. And it doesn't matter because this strong, robust economy is just going to take all those interest rate hikes in stride. Now, one of the more interesting reactions was what happened in the gold market, because just like the equity market, gold prices started the day a bit firmer. But then as soon as we got the news of the 75 basis point rate hike, we had a sell off in the price of gold. It didn't quite get down to 1650, but it got to a new low for the year. And then it reversed and shot up. It was up over $20 at the high not quite up to 1700 It almost hit 1690 And then as the market was tanking, the price of gold tanked as well, but it never went negative. And gold prices finished the day up about 7 bucks. But more impressive, again, than the metal itself were the mining stocks. The GDX and the GDXJ, those indexes also sold off when the price of gold sold off. But unlike the price of gold that made a new low, neither the GDX nor the GDXJ made new 52-week lows, and both of those indexes also had sharp rallies following those lows. But when the stock market tanked, even though the gold and silver stocks sold off too, they never went negative. And both the GDX and the GDXJ closed positive on the day. So we have been getting a lot of signs recently that the gold market is flushing out. The gold stocks may have bottomed. The one thing that is preventing me from thinking that the bottom is in for sure is the strength of the dollar. 
The U.S. dollar continues to rise. Again, the dollar index is at new highs, and it's hard to imagine gold making a huge breakout without the dollar breaking down. Although if you look at how the dollar is doing against currencies that are not the Japanese yen and are not the euro, for example, against the Swiss franc, the dollar has been a lot weaker against those currencies. Not that it's weak, it's just not that it's strong. And the Swiss franc has been holding its ground. So you're seeing a lot of strength in the Swiss franc relative to the euro. But again, the main reason that you're seeing the dollar strong against the euro and the yen is because number one, the Japanese aren't doing anything about their inflation problem. The Europeans have finally acknowledged their inflation problem, but they also have a bigger problem that nobody will ignore, and that is dealing with the consequences of boycotting Russian goods, and more importantly, dealing with the consequences of Putin actually starving the European economies of energy. So there is a huge problem that's easily acknowledged with respect to Europe. The problems with the United States, while I think they're even bigger, they're not as obvious to so many people. So while the elephant in the U.S. room is an even bigger, stinkier animal, nobody notices that one. But the elephant that's in the European room, even though it's smaller, doesn't smell as bad, that one everybody sees. So as long as people are focusing on the problems in Europe or the problems in Japan, they're not paying attention to the even bigger problems in the United States. And so the dollar continues to rise and people continue to believe that the Fed can do the impossible, which is to raise interest rates high enough to actually bring inflation back down to 2%, but not so high that they do severe damage to the economy. When the reality is there is no way to return inflation to 2% without not only damaging the economy, but creating a financial crisis, creating a depression. Think about all of the malinvestments, again, all the misallocations of resources, all the mistakes that have been made over the last 12 or 14 years when we've had 0% interest rates and quantitative easing. Think about how bad the 2008 financial crisis was. That was bad, but it's nothing compared to what in store for us now if the Fed tries to normalize rates. Remember, that's what Greenspan did. He normalized rates up to 5% after having kept them at 1% for maybe about a year and a half, and then he slowly raised them back up to 5% over another year and a half. And during that time, we inflated a housing bubble. Well, during the time the rates have been at zero, and now we inflated something much bigger than a housing bubble. In fact, this housing bubble is even bigger than that one. In fact, this one is so big, even Powell acknowledges its existence, because I don't remember the Fed in 2006 or seven saying, that housing prices were too high and that they had to come down. In fact, Janet Yellen was saying that housing prices would never come down. She thought they would keep going up. And if she was wrong, she didn't think it would hurt the economy. But now you actually have a Fed chairman acknowledging that housing prices have to come down. And in fact, if you read between the lines, he's actually acknowledging that we're going to have a recession. He doesn't want to come right out and say it, but that's what he's saying. No prior Fed chairman has had the integrity to admit that, not that Powell is displaying a massive amount of integrity because the scale is all relative and the bar is very low for integrity at the Fed. But given all this, it should be obvious to everybody that the economic pain that we have to endure as a result of this, the hangover from a much bigger high, we have been hooked on monetary heroin for an extended period of time far longer than anything that happened leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. 
So dealing with the hangover has to be much worse, especially if the Fed is sidelined from the bailout game. Because remember, if the Fed is still going to fight inflation, and if we have another financial crisis, which we clearly will, based on having a bigger debt bubble, and therefore the economy is even more vulnerable to these rate hikes, and we started from a much lower level. We didn't start from one, we started from zero. And so we've had an already bigger impact from the raises that we've had proportionate to the debt. We're going to have a much bigger collapse. But unlike 2008, nobody can get a bailout. Because remember, the only reason we could do TARP, the only reason that companies got bailed out, like General Motors. Now, I mentioned earlier, the Ford news, I mean, I think Ford is going to go bankrupt this time if the Fed doesn't pivot. And General Motors is going to go bankrupt for a second time. I said a lot of household names are going to go bankrupt, especially these zombie companies that the Fed has kept alive for a decade with cheap money. They're not going to survive normal interest rates, let alone high interest rates that are actually required. So when we have all these bankruptcies, when we have this collapse, we can't have any bailouts. We can't have any stimulus, not if the Fed wants to continue to fight inflation, but that's why I'm so convinced that it won't. I think when the Fed is forced to choose between two dire outcomes, it is going to choose the lesser evil from a political perspective. That is, whichever one delivers less pain right now. And that's why the Fed will always choose inflation over deflation. It's always made that choice in the past. And I believe it will always make that choice in the future. Expecting anything different, well, that's the definition of insanity.